As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me today to talk Americans Abroad is a gentleman who knows that Joe Scally is the best defender in the Bundesliga. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, I feel like that's the Joe bias showing itself. <laughs> I was going to say, he's not just the best defender in the Bundesliga. He's the best named defender in the <laughs> Bundesliga. Taylor, how's it going? It's going well, man. How is it going for you? We we should always point out in these moments that we're recording this at about 9.30, 9.40 in the morning, East Coast time. Joe is West Coast, and I believe on vacation, but is up at 6.40 in the morning to talk Americans abroad. Joe, that is dedication. I'm trying, man. I'm trying. I am I am legitimately <laughs> excited. I was doing my prep for this last really? night. Really? All right, that's and, good. And, and I just I miss these shows, man. It's fun to mm-hmm. have the European season back because there's so many intricate tactical things happening that gets me really excited about the the top teams in Europe. But also for this stuff, the pool is expanding. The European, uh, uh, the U.S. Um, European mm-hmm. pool hybrid of sorts pool is expanding. We're seeing names that we hadn't really seen before at this top level pop up and and really start to shine. And it's it's so fun. It's it's really exciting, and I love that to start the season. I love that you went with exciting because I was a little worried that it was going to be I'm exhausted. There was an (laughs) EX in there. I wasn't quite sure. Uh, For people who just found us this summer or are tuning back in, uh, this is our sort of normal structure, our normal order. We do the weekend review, which is kind of the big games, the big talking points on Monday. Tuesday, it's all about the Americans abroad. Uh, Usually myself and Joe, we might have some other people joining us this season. We shall see, but we're going to look at different Americans every different week uh, who... Did things, some good, some not good, some in between, uh, and just kind of try to keep an eye on what we like, what we don't like, what's developing, what we're seeing differently with an eye towards that U.S. pool that Joe mentioned, because if we see 
a new left back who can do really well in 1v1 mm. situations and shut down a very good, maybe title-challenging team, suddenly <laughs> maybe we have some more options at left back. But if then we have a left winger who can't do certain things Berhalter wants him to do, then we have some questions there. And so we can kind of see how these players are developing as the season goes. Joe, we've got six players to be discussed. I feel like I've gone heavy on Joe Scally, so I leave it to you to decide if that's who you would like to talk about first. Oh, let's just go right into it. All right. Let's just go right into Joe Scally, who started and played the entire match for Borussia Mönchengladbach in a 1-1 draw with Bayern Munich on Friday. I went back and did some some background research on Joe Scally because he's a name that, that I think a lot of folks are familiar with, but maybe don't know a ton about. He's 18 years old. He signed with NYCFC at, at 15. So he signed that homegrown deal, making him one of the youngest MLS signings of all time. He played in a U-17 World Cup. Then he moved to Mönchengladbach at the start of 2021 for about $2 million with some incentives in there that could uh, net NYCFC a pretty penny. He spent the first, uh, so the second half, excuse me, of last season once he'd moved over to Germany with Gladbach's U23s and, and was playing some there, mostly at left back, which is a theme for him. But uh, apparently he impressed new manager Adi Hoiter in preseason. And so at this point, he had beaten out a, a more senior player for that starting left back role and now is the incumbent starting left back for a really, really strong team. And Taylor, his performance on Friday really impressed me because I hadn't watched this game on Friday. So I went back through and, and was watching some of Gladback and some of Scally specifically. And man, he is a physical presence dealing with Leroy Sané first and then Kingsley Coleman second. What a one-two punch that is. Your first ever yeah. Bundesliga start against one of the best teams in Europe against two of the best 1v1 attacking players in the world. And Scally wasn't flawless. I'm not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes here. He's raw. He has room to grow. But he was he was good in this game, Taylor. He brought a lot of things, especially on the defensive end, to Gladbach in a way that I I genuinely did not expect. So what were the things that were unexpected from him? What were the things sure. that stood out for you from this one? He looked, so I'd seen some clips of him in preseason against teams that are not Bayern Munich. And in those games, he'd looked <laughs> physically strong, right? He, he looked imposing, he looked fast, he looked aggressive. All of those things applied in this game too. And that, I think, is the single biggest thing that surprised me. It wasn't like, okay, against this fourth tier German team, Scali looks really good and strong. It was no, like those same things applied against this incredibly talented team. Yes, Julian Angelsmann's just taking over. Bayern Munich have some some things to work through. But he did look fast. He did look strong. He bodied Thomas Muller off the ball in the 51st minute. And Muller's not this, you know, hyper-aggressive, hyper-strong kind of player, but that's impressive. Thomas Muller is not uh, the slightest of guys. He no, bodied he's Thomas also Muller. a guy, he knows how to use his body. He's very clever in what he does and how he does yeah, it. So yeah. to kind of go into a contest like that either says he thought he was going to win or it means that he was put in a situation that he didn't really want to find himself in. Either way, I feel like that is still uh, credit to Joe Scally. Yeah, so there's that that Muller moment, and then earlier in the game, he has this really nice 1v1 defending sequence versus Robert Lewandowski. It's the 39th minute. It's on the right side of the attack for Bayern and the left side for Gladbach, which makes sense, given where Scali was playing. And, and he he's patient, and he times his, his step really well and pokes the ball away. Again, Robert Lewandowski, not this incredible 1v1 attacker, but it's a nice moment. The, the moment, though, that really, really got me defensively. It's it's in the 91st minute, and Taylor, I sent this clip to you. Munch and Gladbach are defending back in their own half, and they're, they're just trying to get out of this game with a draw, which is a good result for them against Bayern Munich. Bayern pushing for that, win, for that winner. They're in possession in the attacking half. Nicolas Sula plays the ball out wide on the right side, Gladbach's left side, to Kingsley Coleman. And Scali is 1v1 
isolated against Coleman. It's it's sink or swim time, basically. And Scally stays with Coleman. He doesn't dive in. He stays with him the whole way, forces Coleman back, and then forces Coleman to pass the ball backwards to a teammate. It's just phenomenal 1v1 defending, again, against one of the best 1v1 attackers in the world. Three minutes later, I didn't send this clip to you, Taylor. There's a very similar moment, and Scally does get beaten. He he dives in a little bit too much, and then Coleman cuts him to the end line and gets across. And that's dangerous, and, and that could have been a decisive moment in this game. But it wasn't, and I think overall, Scally won more of those kinds of matchups. Against Sané, he got done, I think, once against Sané, and once against Coleman. That's twice in the whole game? Man, I, I just was so impressed by that 1v1 defensive ability. And the, the tools are there. The execution is not there every time just yet. But man, the foundation of how Scali can can affect games defensively is clearly visible, Taylor. And clearly visible to me, because I am very observant, is that Joe Scali was on the left side of defense. Yes, sir. Uh, what did you make of that aspect of his game, given that he is right-footed? Do you think... With the kind of variability of Serginho Dest, he could play left, he could play right. Does Joe Scali give us more depth, more different options? Where do you think from this performance alone? And I know small sample size, like we're being sure, deliberately sure. small sample size with this episode, with this show. But yeah, w- what did you sort of make of him overall in relation to the U.S. pool? I think, honestly, he brings a lot of defensive upside that players, especially left backs in the pool right now, don't have. Anthony Robinson, I'm not sure, is this lockdown 1v1 type of defender. He's not going to get obliterated every time. The same goes for Dest. He can do some strong things defensively, but I wouldn't categorize him as a defender first. And I think Scally is a defender first. He made some runs up the wing in this game from that left back spot, but he's not getting forward a ton. And part of that's because they're playing Bayern Munich. But part of that is just because he maybe doesn't look as comfortable flying forward on that left side because he wants to get the ball on his right foot. But then I think he is just, I think of Julian Araujo, who is who's a defender, right? He'll still get forward, but he is, he's tough, he's gritty, he's a defensive type of player. Scally is similar, and for that reason, I actually think he, he fits okay at left back. He doesn't get on the ball a, a ton and play a, a lot of incisive passes, or at least he didn't on Friday. But you can kind of live with that if your left back is going to be more of a stay-at-home type of player. So I don't, I don't love Scally at left back. I think he probably would, would fit a bit better with Gladbach and, and with the national team at right back. But he's got options in front of him. He's got players in front of him at, at that spot for both of those teams. So I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that he could impact the national team at left back. Again, small sample size at some point down the line. All right. So uh, any other things we need to talk about when it comes to Borussia Mönchengladbach and Joe Scali? Again, so impressed that this kid won the starting left back job. Gladbach also brought in a German youth international, Luca Nentz, out of, uh, they brought him out of Hertha Berlin, I believe. And he's keeping, Scali's keeping Nets out of the lineup. So it's just, I'm, I'm impressed. And I don't really know what else to say other than go on, Joe Scali. Great name. Uh, keep doing your thing. <laughs> um, and they do have Bayard Leverkusen away this weekend. I would say if they can get a point there, even a win there, certainly a win there. Um, between Leverkusen and Munich with the way Gladbach finished last season, that's a, that's a good start. I, yeah. I think you've got to be pleased. And if Joe Scali is involved in that one and they look good again, uh, doubly pleased for me. Uh, I was also pleased to see Serginho Dest uh, playing for Barcelona and doing a lot of different things. Joe, you ready to talk some Serginho Dest in Barca? Oh, let's do it, man. All right. So... Interesting that you characterized him as uh, not a defender first, because I would absolutely agree with you. 
I don't know if Ronald Koeman did last season because mm. it seemed to me that last season, by my memory from our weekend reviews, we, we tended to talk about Serginho Dest being the more conservative of the two fullbacks for Barcelona, that it was Jordi Alba sort of bombing down that left wing, putting in crosses, getting off shots, being involved, and Dest, I think, being a little bit more stay-at-home, hold your position. He would get forward. He would get involved. But I also remember a lot of like Messi passing the ball to Dest. Dest dribbles forward a yard and then drops it back to Messi and lets Messi create. Joe, does that roughly vibe with your memory from yes. last season? Yeah, talking about yeah for sure. Okay. Because in this game, I saw very much the opposite of that. This is where I saw Ronald Koeman using Serginho Dest more like Greg Berhalter uses him. As this Defensive player, certainly, but very attacking defensive player and heavily involved and being given license to go at people. And Joe, that's one of the clips I sent you. It doesn't come to anything. It's not a goal or an assist, but it's just Dest getting the ball wide. I think he plays a pass, receives the ball back. Then he goes at defenders and does some stepovers and gets into the box and, and kind of makes that penetrating run with the ball at his feet forces the defense back, and then I think he ends up cutting it back. But just those sort of incisive moments are what you need if you're playing for Barcelona and you're playing against teams that are going to be a little more defensive. And to see him that much more involved in the attack was a very positive thing for me because it's a thing we know he can do, but it didn't seem like it was the thing that either he was comfortable doing last season or was being allowed to do last season. Now it seems like he is. I don't know how good Barcelona are going to be this year. Yeah, 4-2 mm-hmm. win on opening day is a good start to their La Liga campaign. I don't know how good they're going to be moving forward, but I'm pretty sure this is going to be a yeah. really fun year to watch Serginho Dest play soccer for the exact yeah. reasons you just mentioned. He's able to get forward more, and we'll see more of this, I'm, I'm pretty confident, as the season goes on. But Messi is one of the only players in the world. This is, this is going to sound hyperbolic, but I don't mean it to. He's one of the only players in the world that I think could reasonably prevent Serginho Dest from getting forward so, so much. Because that yeah. is what Dest wants to do. Mm-hmm. And it's what he's good at, man. He is a 1v1 kind of player. And there's room for him to grow in choosing his moments and picking his spots of when and where to take someone on. I think that is part of his game that can continue to improve. But he's dangerous that way. He's a legitimate threat for FC Barcelona when he is on the ball in a dangerous spot in the attack, in the Manchester City zone, on the outside of the box, or a little bit wider on that right side. And I'm I'm so excited to watch him do more of that stuff this year than he did last year when he had Messi on that wing. Nothing against Messi. You know, he's pretty good yeah. at this whole soccer thing, but you get <laughs> right? the idea. Yeah, I'm glad you, you touched on that at the end there, because that was where I wanted to pick up from, which is like, this is very much, again, for people who are new to the show, we love the expression, things can be two things. It comes from Jake Peralta of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, saying that a sunglasses case can also be a wallet because stuff can be two things. (laughs) Here, things can be two things simultaneously. It can be that Lionel Messi is the best player in the world, is a player that cannot be replaced, and makes this Barcelona team instantly better. But it can also be the case that not having to utilize Messi and not having to kind of fit Messi into a lineup and get players around this specific type of player who does these specific things does let Ronald Koeman do a little bit more and have more variation in what he wants to do. And I think, Joe, you kind of hit it on the head there, is that Messi isn't going to be asked to, to like, haul back and get into defensive shape and make sure that he's stopping counterattacks. He's not going to be asked to do defensive cover and let Serginho Dest go roaming around. Uh, Nor would I think that that would be the, the thing to ask him to do. But here, when you don't have Messi involved, and instead it's Antoine Griezmann on the right, it's Frankie de Jong, as the right-sided central midfielder, but 
a lot of variability and changeability to the way Barcelona were attacking. And we can talk about tactics if we want. But I think the bigger thing is just that there is more license for Serginho Des to be involved in the attack now that he does have more cover. It's not Antoine Griezmann who's covering him. It is instead essentially Sergio Busquets who drops to the kind of left center back role when Barcelona are in sustained periods of possession in attack. And then it was Gerard Pique in the middle. It was Garcia becoming the right center back. And now you've got that back three cover. It allows Alba and Dest to get forward. It allows your wide attackers to go central. And Barca had really good luck and really good chances from this sort of like... 3-1-3, 3-1-3, sorry, 3-1-3-1 central. Like, so you still have eight players through the middle. So that requires the opponent to kind of cram numbers central. Otherwise, you're going to get overloaded. But then with Dest and Alba now given license to bomb forward, you can't really seed the wings either. And that was what Sociedad kept figuring out, was that if you left the wings open, Barcelona had the individual attacking talent to make that you'd pay. And if you tried to cover those wings, then they could pass through the middle. And it did give them a lot of different looks, and it caused a lot of problems and it led to four goals. So it was really cool to watch that game, probably with lowered expectations, but to see Serginho Dest become just a much more pivotal player for the way Barcelona want to attack and defend. It made my heart happy, Joe. It made my heart happy. That's what we need, Taylor. We need more things that make well just all of our hearts happy, really. One thing, one thing you said there about Barcelona having so many numbers centrally, but then also allowing their wingbacks to, to move out wide. I think Dest is a player that works really well in a hybrid role like that we saw this some last season I'm guessing we'll see it again this year where Dest is playing as the right side of defender but he's tucking inside a lot he's either in that right half space or even a little bit further inside because he's so good on the ball because he's skillful and can combine and do all those sorts of central midfielder things he's dangerous inverted and he's also dangerous overlapping and getting out wide and we see the overlap a little bit on the the mention the the dribble you already mentioned but I I think we're going to see again more of that this season and I think it's going to be a sequence that really suits Dest and allows uh, Ronald Koeman to get the most out of him this year. Uh, Yeah, and then I think what we also saw from him in this game was doing the defensive side of things good enough. And I emphasize good enough because, Joe, the clip I sent you It's sort of good awareness. He aggressively steps. He wins the ball. He puts in like a sliding challenge that he knows he's going to get. And it's a good read of the play. But I spotlighted that one. I didn't send you the worst one, which was earlier in the game. He tries to do that exact same play, but is too aggressive, over-pursues. The player just cuts right around him, gets to the end line, puts in a cross. And it is a fairly dangerous cross at that. And so it was nice to see him... um, I wouldn't say that correct that mistake because it is it is a similar approach the second time round and he ends up pulling it off. And I think was pretty aggressive in the way he was trying to defend 1v1s. But at watching the game and realizing that if you're doing that every single time, even if it means you get beat once or twice, but you're never getting yelled at or corrected, that says to me that he's doing what his manager wants. And so that says to me that Barcelona are trying to step and be very aggressive in those 1v1 scenarios, especially wide. And I think that was a feature of their game, that they had some consistent team pressing, but a lot of individual pressing triggers and one player sprinting out to close somebody down when the ball goes back. That player sprints back central and somebody else presses high. And and I think there was a variability to the way Barcelona attacked and the way they defended. But Serginho Dest seemed uh, adept at splitting that difference and finding the sort of uh, common thread, or the commonality between them and making it work. So uh, a good win for Barcelona and I would say a better performance for Serginho Dest on opening day.
Yeah, if, if Dest can be an adept defender, I think that's a win for everybody involved yeah. in the situation. He doesn't have to be Maldini here, right? He, he really no. doesn't have to be. But if he could, if he could approach Maldini in some small That'd way, I think, I think that's a win. <laughs> That would definitely be a win. Uh, although Maldini, I think, wouldn't approve of the slide tackle. Yeah, yes. Yeah, stay in it. your spot, man. Positioning yeah. is king. That's, no that's true, feet. actually. But still. <laughs> All right. But <laughs> thus far, we've been positive. We're a third of the way through our Americans Abroad recap. Uh, we will be back with two more players in just a moment. But first, a word from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We are talking Americans abroad. Joe, we have been to Germany. We have been to Spain. Where shall we head next? You know, I thought Germany was really nice. Let's go right. back there, maybe see okay. a different part of the country. <laughs> uh, I want to talk Gio Reyna. We've talked two fullbacks already. Let's move into central midfield, not out wide, to talk Gio Reyna, who started and scored for Borussia Dortmund in their 5-2 win over Eintracht Frankfurt. Giorena is playing a different spot, and I just not so subtly hinted at it in that little introduction. It's Marco Rosa. It's the Marco Rosa effect. He's coming in uh, after managing Borussia Mönchengladbach last season. He is Dortmund's new manager, and, you know, and I know you and Manuel Veith talked about this move on the Bundesliga preview last week, I believe, or maybe it's the week before last time is a flat circle. Uh, it, was, it was last week. Okay. You got it right. Last mm-hmm. week. Perfect. Does it help that I wasn't sure for a moment there? <laughs> yes, if, it does. If that's at all helpful? Cool. It genuinely does help me. Thank you. <laughs> in that in that show, you guys talked about how Giorena's role looked like it was going to change, and he was going to be less of a wide midfielder in a 4-2-3-1 and more of a central midfielder, one of the two number eights in front of a number six in a 4-3-3. And that's exactly what we saw in this game for Dortmund against Eintracht Frankfurt. Under Favre and, and Terzic, Reyna had played out wide, and this in this game under Rosa and in their uh, first DFB Pokal game, I believe, as well, Reyna was inside in a more central position. He was dropping deep in this game. He was dropping deep in build-up, also staying a little bit higher as a number 10. Sometimes it was more of a 4-2-3-1 shape for Dortmund as they would build. He was playing with his back to goal in a central spot. He was trying to get the ball in the half turn in a central spot. And it it was fun, man. It was fun watching Giorena play this role because we haven't seen him do it a whole lot outside of what, the USU-17s, outside of NYCFC's academy years ago. He has been a wide player, and he probably still will be a wide player for Greg Berhalter going forward. But, man, we got we to gotta look at a whole different set of skills from Giorena in this game, and I really enjoyed it. What skill set did you enjoy the most? Okay, so the cop out answer here is the goal. The goal was yeah. the goal was nice, <laughs> but the the best part of the goal was the Holland cutback to Giorena, yeah. which I really thought was a shot, and I yeah. part of me still thinks agree. that. But man, yep. it's it's just right to Giorena and Holland. I just expect to take the cover off the ball whenever he shoots, and there was some finesse on this ball over to Giorena. Either way, the ball comes to Giorena just about the six yard box, and he puts it in the back of the net. Not the hardest finish that Giorena will ever have. So that that that's nice. The thing I I really liked in this game was 
is Giorena's willingness to try stuff in central areas. And he is that kind of player, that try stuff kind of player. There's this moment, I sent this to you, Taylor. It's in the first half stoppage time. And Dortmund are defending in their own half. They win the ball. It's played out to Giorena, who's still deep in Dortmund's half. And at this point, Giorena just starts to drive the ball forward. He starts to dribble. He draws one defender. He draws another defender. He forces a third one to hedge towards him just a little bit. And while at full speed, while at unbalancing this, while he's unbalancing this opposing defense, Reyna pulls out this outside of the right foot through ball attempt to Jude Bellingham, who's his other number eight. They're the dual eights in this game. And he pulls out this outside of the football forward to Jude Bellingham, who's he's trying to split two defenders to find Bellingham's run in behind the back line. And the ball was just a little bit too far away for Bellingham to get to. Get to. He, he gets a foot on it, but he can't control it. It needed just a tiny bit taken off of the power meter on that one. But it is... It's, it's a lovely moment. It's a lovely idea that could have broken that sequence open. I think Reyna gets more of those types of moments to actually make plays instead of being the one that's relying on his teammates to make plays and find him in dangerous spots. Reyna can now put on his playmaker hat a little bit. And I think he's really good at that job. Not all of his moments came off in this game, but he had another another similar chance creation type moment, this time in possession. And he found Erling Holland, I believe the 17th minute. He's floating in the 10 spot. Gio Reyna is in the, in the final third. And he gets on the ball from a teammate and he he tries to thread Erling Holland through in behind and it doesn't it doesn't work but these are the type of moments that you want your playmakers trying to find trying to take advantage of of those weak spots in opposing defenses and Giorena was doing that kind of stuff in this game in a spot that he doesn't have all that much experience in at a Bundesliga level and all that stuff made me really happy Taylor I'm glad that you are happy, Joe. I have a question that will be preceded by a long and uh, rambling <laughs> thought experiment. Bring so it. I have been frustrated by Gio Reyna in the past for, I think, obvious frustration. Mm. I have been frustrated by his frustration in that we like we saw him kick out a couple seasons ago and and like a uh, goal gets called back because he kicked somebody behind the run of play. But then there's just moments where I see him screaming for the ball and getting really frustrated when it doesn't come to him. And uh, that that's sort of where I've been on Gio Reyna at times. And I feel like it's it's so obvious when he gets frustrated that I, I think it's because it wasn't my specific style as a player. I kind of didn't like playing with people who were like that, which maybe is why I didn't play at a very high level. Uh, but like that sort of has always bugged me. But to watch him this weekend, and that was very much on display, I am slightly coming around to the idea that that is just a feature of his game and maybe a feature of that Dortmund team that when you play with a player like Erling Haaland who wants the ball and is going to demand it and is going to take it and and find a way to score you have to be equally ruthless and this is sort of where I am right now with him I'm I'm basically my question is going to be what do you make of this slash Gio Reyna but like for that goal that he scores the fourth goal for Dortmund he is complaining the entire time until that ball comes to him, even as it's like that scuffed shot slash pass, whatever it was from Holland, like Reyna is standing there with his hands up in the air, like really frustrated and then reacts to it quickly and finishes. But he is still sort of annoyed the ball doesn't come to him. Uh, and for the second goal, I believe it was uh, the uh, Torgan Hazard goal. Reyna gets the ball, drives forward. It's the one where he plays it into Royce and Royce sort of lays it off while getting fouled. But uh, advantage given correctly. Arling Holland then picks it up, drives central. Reyna goes to his left. Torgan Hazard goes to his right. Holland finds Hazard. Hazard hits the shot, scores the goal. And until that ball is in the back of the net, Reyna is, again, furious, throwing his hands up in the air. Why haven't I received the ball? I will say, as soon as it hits the net, he does like the double fist pump celebration. He is immediately elated they scored. So there's 
none of that lingering frustration of like, I should have been the one to score. There's none of that pettiness. And so I think, again, what I'm coming around to is just the idea that he is a competitor who wants to score. He wants the ball. He wants to justify his spot in that team and keep justifying it. And I think it was in the Gold Cup that I think I praised uh, Busio for coming on and demanding the ball and kind of moving around to find himself in pockets of space where he could get the ball. And that stood out to me. And I think it would be slightly hypocritical to praise one player for demanding the ball and showing and, and shouting for it and pointing at his feet and then to criticize another one for doing the exact same thing while also scoring a goal in the Bundesliga. So I think basically, again, I'm coming around to the idea that it's it's more so a feature of his game, a feature of that club. Joe, all of that said, again, extended monologue, what? Uh, do you have any concerns about that one, or are you mostly okay with that sort of temperament disposition aspect of Reina's game? I'm I'm okay with it. It's not, right. like you said earlier, I don't think it's something that I would have enjoyed playing mm-hmm. alongside. And it, it wasn't really when I was playing sports at a very, very, very much lower level. <laughs> but there's a reason why you and I are doing this and not, well, there's mm-hmm. probably multiple reasons behind that. But I mean, we're, we're not playing at that level. And I think so at a certain point. never got a fair point, shot, Joe. I never got a fair shot. I know. I had and college coaches on the phone yeah. and they, I, I, only have, <laughs> I only have one phone. So um, I think there's a reason why Gio Reyna is playing at the level he is and his attitude and his... He's a gamer, man. He's a competitor. And I think that's a huge part of what makes his game his game. And at this point, I'm just restating everything you said. But he's going to gesticulate. If you look mm-hmm. up, I'm pretty sure if you look up gesticulation in the dictionary, it's just Giorena. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's yep. a gif of him in the first goal and the whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but he's, he's that kind of player. Yeah. And at, at some point, that's going to ruffle feathers. And it's going to ruffle feathers with Dortmund. And it probably already ticks certain people off. Like Erling, Erling Holland's going to be upset at him at times. And they're going to be fine after because then Giorena is going to be upset at Erling. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work out. The same thing at the national team level. It's going to ruffle feathers. But I, I think it's going to be fine. And either way, if you have to pick, you have to take a trade-off. You take Gio Reyna with this attitude versus a passive, much less aggressive Gio Reyna. I, I think yeah. that's a huge part of what makes him him, and it makes him a really, really good player, Taylor. Yeah, I agree with you. And I would say I even go back to, like, uh, I forget when it was when he was first breaking through. I think it was last season, and I think you and I were discussing it maybe, that, like, uh, he gets an assist, I think, again, last season, I forget, where he... I think he's like in on goal one-on-one with the keeper and he squares it to Holland who scores. And Holland, we weren't sure. It seems as though Holland turns and points at him. And at first we thought it was like, oh, he's saying like, oh, that was all you. That was you. And then I think watching it a little bit closer, we were wondering if maybe Holland was saying like, no, you need to score that. Like you shouldn't pass that. You should be shooting. And I don't think that was a like criticism. I think that was the ruthlessness that maybe Dortmund want to display and I think did display this weekend and I hope will continue to display. So, again, I think it's it's maybe a feature of the game, less so a defect. One other quick thing on Giorena before we move on to your next player, Taylor. He was he was an asset defensively. I talked about how Scali was an asset defensively against Bayern. Reyna was was a positive contributor as one of those central midfielders in Dortmund's 4-3-3 that kind of flattened out into a 4-5-1 defensive shape. He was playing as one of those two number eights, like I said, and he was aggressive with his counterpressure. He was aggressive with with just his actual press. I sent you a moment in the 49th minute. It's uh, Frankfurt building up. They're playing out to the right back, which is Gio's side in this particular moment. He's playing as a left-sided number eight. And they combine a little bit, and they end up playing the ball back to their right-sided center back. And Reyna closes that player down really quickly, deflects an attempted forward pass, then gets his body in front of that center back then beats an on-rushing central midfielder to the ball he keeps the ball in and finds a teammate with this little desperate chop that's this it's just this perfect 
defensive sequence where there's maximum effort and it actually works. I just, I love this play. Reyna is such an asset in those individual 1v1 or even 1v2 physical battles. That could be after he loses the ball because he's held on to it too long, which he did in this game. That's an area he needs to improve. But it, it could also be in these defensive moments where Dortmund are trying to win the ball back in Rosa's press. I just really think I led with the making plays and trying stuff kind of attribute. But I honestly think this, this defensive individual aggression where he's not on the ball, he's going to win 50-50 balls, that might be his single strongest attribute. And I'm, I'm pumped to see that continue to grow throughout the rest of the season. So basically, if we're, if we're grading, what, what would you give the grade right now for Gio Reyna this season from this first game? I'll give him a B plus. All B right. plus. It would have been it would have been an A if if he turned the ball over a few fewer times and gotten on the half turn a little bit more. But uh, I don't know, a little nitpicky. So I'm giving him a B plus. And forgive me if you mentioned this already, Joe. But right now, where is he playing for the U.S. national team? If we have a starting eleven, our first choice starting eleven for a game tomorrow, where do you have him lining up on the field? If we assume Berhalter goes with the the four three three shape that we've come to expect with the kind of one number eight who can maybe be two number eights. We're not quite sure. But basically, uh, we're, we would expect there to be at least one wide attacker. Is is he there or is he more central for you right now? Yeah, he, I think Berhalter has him out wide. So I, okay. I think that's where it makes the most sense to think of him right now. If we see a shape change or it's against an opponent that, that maybe the U.S. is going to control more of the ball, you shift him inside to play in a more central spot permanently. But he can still get into the half space. He can still drop deep from that right in narrow right wing or right half space kind of guy. So I think that's the spot where he's at right now. And could you see him doing, because I think I basically, midway through my explanation of Berhalter's tactics, I realized that we have seen them play with wide attackers and kind of out-and-out wingers, but oftentimes those out-and-out wingers will still rotate with the attacking midfielders, sure, and the left sure. midfielder becomes the left attacker. But this Gold Cup, we saw Matthew Hoppe theoretically as a left winger, but oftentimes as... A like left-sided striker who was also a left midfielder who would like sort of like drop in and be central. We saw that on the right-hand side, and I'm realizing now that really does suit Gio Reyna's game pretty well. So being on the right side of the left side, I think he has that versatility to be able to pop up in different positions and do different things. So be it wide or be it central, I just know that Gio Reyna will be in that starting 11, and I am good with that. Yeah, same here. There was a stretch last season where I thought Tim Weah had mm-hmm. passed Gio Reyna over, and based on club form, that was probably fair. I I don't know that anybody yeah. is going to be passing Gio Reyna anytime soon. It's early, and there will be dips in form, and, and there'll be games where he doesn't have a B plus in terms of my super objective rating scale. But um, he's he's a phenomenal young player, and he's got a bright bright future. And I was reminded of that watching this game, and it was it was great fun, Taylor. Well, I do like your super objective rating scale, so thank you for that. Uh, I appreciate uh, Gio Reyna being involved in the conversation. I appreciate Tyler Adams certainly being involved in the conversation. We're going to stick in Germany to talk about Leipzig's disappointing opening loss uh, to Mainz, a team that they have beaten by almost double digits at other points in other seasons, but this time around, they do not win. Uh, And it's a strange one because I can't just watch this game from a Tyler Adams perspective and oh, you know, whatever, Leipzig conceded and they didn't win, but he had an okay game and it wasn't his player who scored. Jesse Marsh being there, Joe, it makes it even more emotional because now every time things don't go well, I get worried for an American coach (laughs) abroad and what that could mean. We do have an American at the top of the Bundesliga right now, so there's that. We can have that positivity. But I think Leipzig's performance heading in, I assumed knowing the result, knowing it was a 1-0 loss, I was pretty concerned. I still have some concerns, but the goal 
pretty fluky. I would not put that on Jesse Marsh at all. And I think Tyler Adams overall, uh, pretty consistent and strong and mostly just nice to see him starting and playing. Yeah, the goal you sent me this moment, it's on Twitter as well. It's yeah. just it's a comedy of errors of sorts. Mm-hmm. It's it's errors that lead to the corner. It's an error that allows the ball to even get close to the goal in the first place on the corner. It's not a you know, an overarching macro problem that Leipzig are dealing with. Yes, I mean, improving set piece defense is important and that's going to come. But I don't think, I don't think we should be too panicked about this team just yet. No, most of the reason why I, I wanted to include that, Joe, aside from you seeing Haidara trying to clear the ball and putting hey. it behind himself, which is special, mm. is also that that corner comes from a throw-in. Joe is the one to point out that throw-ins matter. Uh, and I think it's Campbell trying to clear it, hits it off his own player, and that leads to the corner, and then there's the failed clearance, and that leads to the goal. That's why I go back to, I don't know how much I put that on Jesse Marsh. I don't know if he can teach players to kick a ball better. <laughs> I mean, maybe he can. Maybe that's the, the downside to his coaching. But I would say that aside from that, we did see some interesting things from Leipzig in a more 4-2-3-1 shape than I think I was expecting. But like, I think we tend to see more just permutations of like we'll see them in a in a back four sometimes it's a back three sometimes it's a midfield two sometimes it's a midfield three and I felt like it was a more standard four two three one with Tyler Adams and Kevin Campbell as the the double pivot with Emil Forsberg ahead of them then we had Nkunku on one side Hadar on the other Andre Silva up top and we saw Tyler Adams do Tyler Adams things we saw him be tidy on the ball when he needed to be the one clip I sent you Joe is uh when basically Leipzig I think before they've they've conceded a goal still uh equal footing at that point but it's Mainz being defensive numbers behind the ball I think everybody in their own half behind the ball and Leipzig just needing a penetrating a penetrating pass or a penetrating run or or just something to create uncertainty, to destabilize Mainz. And it's Tyler Adams getting the ball passed to him. I think when he didn't really want it, like I think he wasn't set to receive, but he gets set very quickly and then just does the self-dummy, turns, closes it down because maybe it's a, a bit overhit, so he has to get to it just before a defender can. But even then, because he's able to make up that ground and just poke the ball past the defender to a teammate, now... Not only have you bypassed that sort of static front line from Mainz uh, defending in like a 5-2-3, but then also because now you've pulled one of their defenders out who's trying to step to win that ball and he has lost it. Not only do you have numbers around the ball in open space, but you also have defenders who now have to scramble and improvise what they're doing defensively. And that's what you need from your from your midfielder. That's what Tyler Adams gave you, but then he also gave them a lot of that just good reads of stepping when he needed to and a lot of the stepping to an open player then stepping to another open player and then finally stepping to the player who's just received the ball to poke the ball away or make them pass the ball back and it was just a good defensive performance from him in an otherwise unremarkable game for Leipzig going back to that offensive moment you mentioned with the Mm -hmm. self dummy lets the ball roll past him two I I have two quick things first of all Tyler Adams looks built Man, I don't know right. if I've just never noticed this before or if he was hitting the gym over the offseason, the short offseason that he had. But man, he looks like a physical presence and he is a physical presence defensively. But also, I think the fact that he is strong really does help him with the ball and it helps him when Leipzig are in possession. In this specific moment you're talking about, he has to accelerate so quickly. He has to get up to speed so quickly, and because he has the burst to get there, he has the physical ability to get there, he can then unbalance the opposing defense. If he doesn't have that strength and that quickness, I don't think you see moments like this from Tyler Adams. So that's that's number one. I just had that, yep. holy crap, this guy's mm-hmm. built kind of moment. <laughs> well, he's he is, like, I think of him as being fairly slight yeah, in stature. Same, which is- so, like... 
And it, I've never thought of him as like weak or easy to be knocked off the ball. He's always had that sort of low center of gravity strength. But I'm with you that maybe it's the New Jersey. Those new, those new kits <laughs> for Leipzig are, are quite pretty. But I think it is he fills it out more. And there's definitely a resiliency to him and a willingness to sort of, yeah, we can go into a challenge and we'll see what happens. I, I, I think I don't see him, not that he ever like pulled out of challenges, but I think I see him being even more aggressive than I'm used to. And again, I like it. Yeah, so that's, that's thing number one. And thing number two for me, I, I've talked about before, and I think this is pretty clear to see, how Adams isn't always the most comfortable dropping deep and pinging balls around and playing this Busquets distributor type of role. That's not really his game. He is much more of a, I'm going to buzz around, I'm going to win the ball, and I'm going to influence the game that way. I do think, though, maybe one area where I've, I've shorted him in the past is with those little connecting passes, those little moments where he's able to receive the ball on the half turn between the lines, get on it quickly, take maybe one touch, two touches at the most, and then play it forward. That's not exactly what happens in this moment that you sent, Taylor, but it's it's pretty similar, right? It's Adams playing quickly with the ball, which is oftentimes all he's asked to do for, the, for Red Bull, and I think that could be... So I, I just feel like that's an area of his game that maybe I didn't realize and I was unable to separate from those long diagonal balls, which he doesn't always hit with the most accuracy. I think he's quite clean, actually, between the lines, getting on the ball and connecting play quickly, but maybe less so dropping deep and distributing and, and trying to break games open from deeper areas. So that's just more, this is more of a note and a commitment for me that I have to go back and, and either watch old film or, or continue to pay attention as the season progresses for Leipzig and then hopefully in World Cup qualifying with the U.S. men's national team to pay attention to how Adams does work between the lines and connect play because I think I think that could be something that he's actually quite good at that maybe I haven't given him enough credit for in the past. So if we're trying to like distill this down to like digestible little nuggets, Joe, how would you like like explain the thing that you're going to pay attention to as sure. we go forward in the season or might go back to to check out? When Adams receives a pass, maybe from a center back or from a full back, and he's playing in central midfield, which was fun to see him actually play in that spot, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I, I, I'm going to be looking for quick little, not, not combination play, but short little passes. How clean is he receiving the ball, and how quickly is he getting the ball out from his feet? Because my suspicion, and I, I think this has just been me not paying as much attention in the past, I think he's actually going to be really good at that stuff, and connecting play quickly, and operating in those tight little spaces. Not, not playing these long, bombing passes, but just getting on the ball, moving it, getting in a new spot, getting the ball, moving it. That's the thing I'm watching for. And I think we did see that from him in like in the time that we did see him last season, uh, when especially Leipzig needed to chase or needed to pull a goal back. I think that was when Nagelsmann gave him more freedom, not necessarily to roam. He's always going to stay central, but to keep that ball moving, to maybe turn under pressure and then pass the ball and then receive it back and then pass the ball. And I think we did see some of those combinations. So I'm with you. I want to see more of that and what sort of variability he adds to that aspect of his game. So lots of things to keep uh, keep an eye on in Germany. I think we've spent a lot of time in Germany. I think we're going to be going elsewhere for our final two players. I believe I'm correct in saying. Checks notes. Yes, I am correct in saying. <laughs> but first, uh, a word from today's sponsors. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, 
courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Joe. Two-thirds of the way through now. It all checks out. Uh, one player each still to be discussed. Who should we talk about next? Oh, you know we had to talk about him. Christian Pulisic, who started and scored in Chelsea's 3-0 win over Crystal Palace on Saturday. Chelsea's starting out strong, man. 3-0 win. They played Tuchel ball. They played out of that 3-4-3 shape with Christian Pulisic playing mostly as a left-sided winger, which is really more of a left-sided attacking midfielder. It was fun to see him in that left-sided spot because I think mostly for Chelsea last year, he played on the right. And he did play on the right as this game progressed some, but it was Mason Mount on the right. It was Timo Werner up top and Christian Pulisic on the left. Honestly, I think we've said a lot of positive things so far, and I will say positive things about Christian Pulisic. This was not his sharpest game on the ball. He he lost right. possession a good few times in the opening 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes of this match. But even in a game like this, and this is what really stood out to me, well, one of two things that really stood out to me, is even in a game where he's losing the ball and is not maybe at his best when he's when he's in possession, he still created danger. He's that he's that level of a 1v1 attacking player. He's that level of a possession player even, where when he's not at his best, he can still get on the ball. He can still drive forward. He can still unbalance defenses. And he, he drew a couple of really big and important fouls in big and important areas for Chelsea in this game. One, the one that really stood out to me is right it's, it, right in zone 14, maybe five yards outside the top of the box, the middle of the box. Christian Pulisic has to get chopped down because he's causing too many problems for Crystal Palace in their defensive line. He can still do those kinds of things even when he's not at his best. So obviously going forward, I want to see better and, and take, Christian Pulisic take better care of the ball. It stood out to me that he's really able to influence the game no matter what. When he's on the ball, or the thing he did really well in this game, Taylor, and I sent you these moments, he influenced the game when he was off the ball. And this is, I think, a really underrated part of Christian Pulisic's game, and I'm going to try to to raise our level of rating this part of his game so it, it won't be underrated anymore. He moved really well off the ball. He crashed the box multiple times in the first 10 minutes, finding the penalty spot or finding the near post or the back post. Then he made this center back splitting central run in the 10th minute. He sees there's a gap between two of Crystal Palace's defenders and he, he just bends in and curves his run like a banana from outside to inside and gets on the end of a cross from Marcus Alonso. Alonso sees him making that run picks him out because he's he's open. He's open in that space and Pulisic gets his head on it and the header's right at the keeper. But if that that header is placed a little bit better, a little bit wider in the goal mouth, that's a that's a goal, man. It, it's these moments of off-ball movement. He was the accent runner behind Timo Werner in the 35th minute to get on the end. And by accent runner, sorry, I should probably explain that. Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> uh, that, that means, um, I think I actually stole this term from Greg Berhalter and I'm sure there's a lot of other folks in the coaching world that are that are using this term but essentially think about the fact that you have a primary runner really crashing the box and in this case that's Timo Werner who's who's the direct guy and he's he's taking the defense's attention he's making them pay attention to him Christian Pulisic is the accent he's like the accent on top of that a if Timo Werner is the letter a Christian Pulisic is the accent on top he's coming in after that that letter he's coming in after Timo Werner and he cuts in and he cuts into open space because Werner has taken all the defense's attention Christian Pulisic can then crash into a spot where there aren't defenders anymore so he was that accent runner that secondary runner behind Timo Werner in the 35th minute and then five minutes later he's the accent runner again coming from a slightly different spot and this is what leads to his goal and I, I haven't talked about the goal until now but that's because it comes from this off-ball movement that I wanted to talk about first it's Chelsea in possession uh, Andres Christensen long ball out to Mason Mount on the right, then Mount and Azpilicueta combine on that right side. Mount plays a ball in for Timo Werner, who's the primary runner drawing the defense's attention. The ball ends up falling to Christian Pulisic, who's in space, and then he scores it. He scores it because he's crashing the box. He knows when to pick those moments. And again, 
Not his best game on the ball, but he still found a way to impact this match and get on the score sheet in a game like that. And you love to see it, Taylor. You love to see it. You do. You love to see it. The internet, uh, as it is wont to do, was a little bit nervous about Christian Pulisic, I think, not playing... Uh, I forget whatever game it was that maybe it was Community Shield, but had people thinking, uh-oh, maybe he's not in the plans. It seems like Joe is going to have another season where sometimes he is in the starting 11, sometimes he is not, sometimes he's a sub, and sometimes he isn't. But the depth of talent Chelsea have will be obvious to most. They did start with Timo Werner up top, uh, and then it was Pulisic and Mount. But they've added Lukaku. They still have Zayek. They still have Havertz. They still have uh, Hudson-Odoi. Uh, probably forgetting somebody else in there. I think Tammy Abraham was on the books, I think has now since moved to Roma on loan. Um, how, like, do you continue to see Christian Pulisic basically playing in that spot or in the Mason Mount spot? Uh, and do you see Timo Werner challenging for minutes there? Or do you think it'll be Timo Werner versus Romelu Lukaku in a sort of rotational battle uh, more central for them? I guess we'd see Christian Pulisic more in that left wing spot, right wing spot in the 3 4 3, because that is Tuchel's mm-hmm. primary shape. Although I think we could also see him some at wing back. I know we saw that a little bit in preseason, even though it's not a spot that Christian Pulisic loves, I'm sure. But I think he's mostly going to be in that inverted, tucked inside, not not necessarily inverted, but but narrow winger spot. And then when Lukaku starts to feature, Timo Werner is going to be competing for minutes along with all those other wide attackers yeah. or I guess narrow wide attacking players that you already mentioned. It's going to be it's going to be a hard year for Christian Pulisic. And I think I said this before in our season previews in our Premier League season previews. It's it's not going to be the easiest of seasons because he's going to be fighting for that spot every single day. But I think there's a real chance that that makes him better. And that even if we don't see him playing game in and game out for Chelsea, which we just won't, that's not realistic. I think this could be a real year of growth for Christian Pulisic. And and that's a good thing. And Joe, I'm putting you on the spot here. It is fine for you to say, I don't know. And that can be a thing that we will write down to pay attention to as the season progresses. But off the top of your head, can you think of things that he definitively needs to work on or specifically needs to work on for Thomas Tuchel? Are there things that you think Thomas Tuchel would like him to be able to do or needs him to be able to do that he can't quite execute the way another player could? Or is it just sort of we'll have to wait and see how he develops and what areas maybe someone else brings to the equation and how Pulisic can learn from that player? I think we're going to need to see more, although the one thing mm-hmm. that does stand out to me is just being a little bit more impactful in tight spaces. And mm-hmm. and by that, I mean, I think Christian Pulisic's primary, his default setting is to dribble out of that pressure, right? And that's his game in a lot of ways. But finding ways to vary up his his game and to pass out of that pressure, to combine quickly, to rotate out wide and, and maybe have Marcus Alonso tuck inside at times, whoever's playing that left wing back spot. I think there's an opportunity for him to become a a bit less one-dimensional, and we're starting to see that with the national team. He really has improved, at least I've started noticing it more. I don't know which one of those two it is, but he's a dangerous through-ball threader. He can thread those balls in behind the back line, link up with teammates that way, and I think that's a really really strong part of his game. I want to see more of that with Chelsea. I want to see more variability in how he plays. But that aside, I think I'm going to be looking for ways to nitpick because at this point with Christian Pulisic, we kind of have to nitpick, right? Because we know the foundation, we know the basics. Yeah. So let's learn more. Let's let's try in, in a positive way, in a good way to pull apart his game and figure out what can still be elevated because I know there are things, but it's just time for us to dig in and find what those things are. 
That feels like a very good segue to our final player we're going to be discussing. Unless you have anything else you'd like to talk about when it comes to Pulisic? No, take us forward, Taylor. All right. Because we do know a lot about Pulisic and we'll continue to learn a lot about him. I would argue we know less about Conrad De La Fuente. Ooh. We know plenty about him. Uh, sometimes known as Conrad, says Wikipedia. Uh, for people who are less familiar, uh, the former Barcelona Academy player sold to Marseille this summer. Uh, partially because I think he wasn't in the plans for Barcelona, also because they desperately needed money. Uh, and he is now playing for Marseille and is playing exactly where Joe and I thought he might, which is at left wing back, which is odd because he is not a wing back. He is much more a conventional winger. If he were still playing for Barcelona, he would be very at home in that 4-3-3 that we've come to expect from them. Here against Bordeaux in a 2-2 draw, he is the left wing back in a 3-2-4-1, is how I would say they set up. And it's worth noting that the other wing back, it's Conrad De La Fuente on the left, and it is Jengiz Under on the right. Again, a very attacking player, not somebody I would think of as a wing back. And that tells you what Jorge Sampaoli wants this team to be, which is aggressive and attacking. Not surprising from his time uh, and his many successes with Chile that he wants his team to be on the front foot, to go at the opponent, to force them back, to make them uncomfortable. And I think this game showed why that works really well and what it looks like when it works, and then it showed you what happens when it doesn't. Uh, and we saw the positives for Conrad De La Fuente as well. He has the the run that uh, that sets up, he gets the MLS assist goal, I guess, uh, for, I think it was Jengi Zunder ends up getting the goal on that one, but it's uh, Conrad De La Fuente getting the ball out wide, making a very good controlled run, and then finding open options in the middle, and, and then we get our goal, but it's sort of it's nice to see him starting receiving the ball, creating space, and then creating that passing option. And the just the deliberateness of the run is a thing that we've I've I've seen from him uh, with Barcelona be a little bit mostly for U.S. youth national teams. And I think my criticism of has been that it's a little bit blunted at times, that it tended to be a, I'm just going to take people on individually. And here in this game, I saw some of that still, and you have to have some of that to be a successful attacking player. But then I also saw him playing simple and playing one and two touch and finding open options when they were on, but trying to create when they weren't. And I thought on the attacking side of things, a strong performance, less so on the defensive side, Joe. Hmm. Okay. Let, I got one thing on the attacking side yeah. first. That MLS assist he has in this game, the game was a little bit stretched at this point. And I think if you're an opposing team trying to defend against Conrad De La Fuente, that's a moment where you're absolutely terrified because he is fast, he's aggressive, and, and when he's going at you at full speed and you're backpedaling a little bit, you're on your heels just a tad, that's when Conrad really thrives, I think. From, from what we've seen with Marseille so far this year and in the past with Barcelona and on all that stuff, he's so dangerous driving at you, and I think the more moments that Marseille can get Conrad driving down that left side and creating danger. He had an assist, he had an assist for Marseille in, in the first game of the league uh, season, and now he's got that MLS assist, that secondary assist in this game. He's a threat driving forward on that left side, and it's great to see. And now, Taylor, now that I've said my positive piece, I want to hear more about the downside maybe on the defensive work that uh, that counterbalances everything we just said. So this is one where I don't know if it's fair to criticize him or the system, but the way Bordeaux... Uh, get back into this game. They're two nil down at halftime. They make they had been forced into an earlier change. They do make a halftime change, and Pembele comes on, and he ends up being the one to score the first goal to kind of pull Bordeaux back into it. And Conor De La Fuente, if not 
he's not entirely at fault, but he definitely plays a role here because basically uh, Bordeaux were in possession. They swing the ball from right to left, and De La Fuente is the reason why I stress that he is not a conventional wingback. He's not, they're not dropping into a 5 2 3 or something like that. It is more of a 3 2 4 1, and he stays pretty high. When the ball goes to the opposite side of the field, when uh, the op- uh, the opponent is in possession, it seems like his job is to move central and pick up any open players there, uh, which theoretically works until when you make that run central and you track the sort of faint pass. And I think that's what happens here. He thinks the pass is going to the middle, so he tries to break on that one. And in so doing, essentially leaves a lot of space out wide for Pembele, again, subbing on and operating on that right-hand side for Bordeaux, or Bordeaux, excuse me, to receive the ball. And now he's basically 20 yards away from De La Fuente, who has to try to get back. He can't really make a play. But as, we, as we've talked about on this episode and others, once other teammates have to make up for you being out of position or have to kind of scramble over... There's a little bit of chaos. There's a little bit of uncertainty. And I think knowing what I know about Jorge Sampaoli, he really is going to hate this goal because there's a hesitancy to the way Marseille were able to defend or tried to defend. And there was kind of a standoffishness. We'll slow them down. We'll make them go backwards. And that can work. It's what uh, Dest did at times in his game. It's what Joe Scali did. We already talked about that. But here, when you're standing off, you can force them into turning backwards, or you can basically give them the attacking momentum and invite them to go at you, and that's exactly what what happens here. Pembele does get past one defender, then another, and ends up getting the goal, and then Bordeaux play their way back into it. Six minutes later, they get their equalizer, and from there, it ends up being a 2-2 draw, and definitely not what Marseille would have wanted. Still more consistency than they had last season, and they are at least top six, four points from two games. It's not not the worst way to start, but I think that just sort of the open the openness of the player out wide combined with the fact that it was a clearly studied approach of they'll all shift to one side and then we can overload the other anytime a team is able to spotlight that level of a vulnerability and then utilize it effectively it just makes me a little bit nervous for a player that we're talking about to be involved in that uh, estimation it just looked this sequence and the the build up to this goal it just looks disorganized from Marseille yeah. it looks like the mm-hmm. players aren't really sure where they're supposed to be they're caught narrow and and really I think the fault is on more of the attacking players higher up the field yeah. to not get pressure on the fair. ball because Conrad's got two players he's trying to deal with and figure out who to step to and how fast to step and where to step it's a really tough situation but Taylor to your point it's a challenge to have him in that situation in the first place even if it's not his fault it is it's maybe not the most productive in terms of defensive development, which I think is really an important step that needs to come in Conrad's game. Even if he's not playing as a left wing back, even if he's playing a little bit higher up the field in a different system for a different manager, I think still improving his defensive work rate. And again, helping him become a little bit more varied in how he plays soccer and not just being a 1v1 merchant. I think it's important for him to add that piece to his game. We don't see it in this clip. Were there any other moments that you saw from Conrad in this game where he had a more traditional defensive responsibility where he was back defending in a back five or or in a 1v1 moment where he's not having to cover a bunch of ground and deal with two players? Like, were there those sequences or is it just all chaos all the time defensively for Sampali? Uh, I wouldn't say it's all chaos all the time, but I will be honest and say that I think that's probably not a thing that I paid as much attention to and perhaps should have. That might be my bias showing, but I think I was so kind of focused on 
their overall shape sure. and how strange yeah. it seemed to me yeah. that I wasn't maybe as focused on what they were trying to do once that was bypassed when they are doing a more sustained defensive job. So maybe that's a thing to keep an eye on and see how Conrad handles that. I just think I will say, though, to see him essentially not being a winger but being that wing back, even if he's not functioning as a much more defensive player, it still makes him do different things. And he's not like I, this sounds like I'm just oversimplifying and maybe I am, but it's for the purposes of this conversation. Like he's not just standing out wide, which is a thing that sometimes we will see with wide attackers in that four, three, three. And, and it was a criticism of mine when he was playing with the U S U S youth national team is that sometimes he is just sort of waiting in that channel for the ball to come to him and then he'll try something. And to see him starting wide, moving central, dropping back, stepping forward, there is just a lot of variable to his game. Variety to his game would be the better way to put that. Um, and so to see him being asked to do different things, both on the attacking side and the defensive side, I think it solidifies his game because it just makes him work on stuff that he hasn't had to work on as much. So maybe, Joe, a, a shorter answer would be, I'm not sure, and I will pay attention to see what he's doing as a more conventional defender as we go along in the season and as Marseille play maybe more dedicated attacking teams. Uh, we, we could definitely see what he does then because I doubt San Paoli goes quite as aggressive against, say, PSG. True, true. Yeah, in both of the games for Marseille this year, they've had, I think, 59% possession and then 60 or 61% possession. So I asked you that question. There probably aren't a whole lot of 1v1 defensive moments or a lot of defensive block moments for Marseille that have just happened yet in this league <laughs> season. So we'll have time, like you said, yeah. we'll have time to look at that stuff. I just, to circle all the way back to the beginning of this show, we've talked about two players that we didn't mention. I don't think we mentioned a single time all throughout doing this show last season, no. Joe Scally and Conrad De La Fuente. That, that just has me so stoked. It's so, yeah. it, it's cool to see progress. And the longer that I, I get to come on and do this show, I guess there'll be that natural progress as time chugs on forward, but it's still just so exciting to me to see two players who have elevated themselves that made, in Conrad's case especially, made a good move yeah. to a team, yeah. and he's now taking full advantage of that opportunity. I I love it, and it has me so excited for the rest of the season, and honestly, for what we've already seen so far. I worry that this will end as a slightly down note. It's not meant to be, but I, I am not the first to say, like, we are rapidly approaching the time when good players are not going to be called up to the national team. Yeah. And we'll maybe miss out on a World Cup if yeah. and when we qualify. And that's not a bad thing. It's just a surprising thing that players starting for some huge clubs in Europe, in France, in Spain, in Italy, elsewhere, like we, we could see players who in the past we've been like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this guy plays there. I can't wait for him to play for the national team. He's going to be our captain for forever. Like now Conrad De La Fuente has to fight to get in there. Timothy Weah has to fight to get in there and even establish names in Major League Soccer like Jordan Morris when he comes back. Maybe he'd be more consistently in the conversation had he not had that injury. But I think we are definitely at the point where we're going to have so many options for Burhalter. It will be about not like who is the best player that I can put into this team, but who is the player that best fits this very specific position I need them to play and role I need them to perform. And I think we have more talent who are capable of making those mental adjustments and figuring things out and understanding the process than I think we've ever had. And it makes me 
even more optimistic than I already was having beaten Mexico twice this time. <laughs> this is Gotta get that in whenever I can, Joe. Gotta get that in whenever I can. <laughs> As you should, man. This is like the next step and it was already a good yep. summer. It's still summer. I'm counting August as summer for me. I don't know if That's it is fair. for other folks out there, uh, but it's still really, really hot in Arizona and on most of the West <laughs> Coast. So this is just a continuation yeah. of a strong summer for the U.S. men's national team. I like it. It is still summer, which means it is still time for vacation for some folks, including Joe. <laughs> Joe, uh, I think, is on vacation as we speak, so I will let you get back to that, Joe. But I appreciate you taking all the time to talk about Americans Abroad with me today. Absolutely, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all for joining us. As I said earlier, this will be a, a weekly thing. If you only want to hear about Americans, then this would be the show for you. But we do have the weekend review where we talk about the bigger teams. We're going to do listener questions as well, allocation disorder to end the week, some other shows in there as well. But lots of great content over here, so we hope you stick with us. Thank you so much for joining us today and all, on all those other shows. And we've reached the point where I struggle to talk. So I will just say <laughs> thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you all again very soon.